I'm Telly Mahoney, and welcome back to The Good Room, where we have interdisciplinary conversations about what makes a room good. And today we're talking about a good classroom with Charles Kirby, Paige's Director of Academic Planning, and Molly Sherman, a senior interior designer. So we're chatting about the intersection of academic planning and interior design in classrooms. So Charles and Molly, the two of you are coming from different disciplines, and I'm curious how that shapes your process when you come to a classroom. My passion is student success, followed by faculty success, but I think in that order. So I think of what's the student experience as they're coming into the classroom. What's the, the vibe? What's the feel? Is it fun? Is there a sense of energy in the room as you, you come into it? And then the second thing is, Every classroom, every learning environment sends a message, whether it's intentional or not. Is the student to be passive and just be a listener? Or is the message when you come in the room that you're going to be an active participant? And that can be from a dark room where you can barely see, you know, the lights and maybe there's a little light over your notes you're supposed to be taking or a, a sunlit room and it just... All of those architectural characteristics set the tone for the learning experience. I would say from an interior designer perspective, you would think that we would come to it where Charles is saying, which is like thinking about the way that the student feels. For me personally, I like to really be a part of those early conversations about how the space needs to function. That's sort of thinking about it from a planner's perspective in a lot of ways. And I think that that shows that there's a lot of overlap in what we do. But I think it's really important for me in order to, to design the feel of the space to first really understand how it has to work for both the students and the professors. So I like to be in early programming conversations where we talk about those things and so that the, the room really is successful in the end. Yeah, I I like to think of it as a four-step process and they, they all feed each other, but it really starts with the pedagogy. What yep. are you trying to do in the room? How are you trying to teach? It has huge square footage implications. Just going quickly then, the second thing is how much technology do you want in the room? Because that's going to shape the characteristics of the room. After those two things, you can get to the furniture. How big is the group? A smaller group at a table means more square footage. The way you configure rows or tablet armchairs, all those things have huge impacts. Only after you get through the pedagogy and the technology and the furniture and group seating experience can you get to designing the space. Yeah, so Charles, you just brought up a great point about the pedagogy and how much that really impacts the design of these classrooms. When I think about classrooms, there's two opposing types. There's that typical lecture style in the active learning classrooms. And when I think of a lecture style classroom, it's a large auditorium with tiered levels and a podium in the front for the teacher to stand. Those tiers really allow for students to have an adequate amount of visibility. So when we move to that active classroom that looks quite different, the teacher might be roaming around the the students working, how can you still prioritize visibility in that space? It's interesting. Once you go from that lecture format, the sage on the stage, pouring knowledge into the brains of these passive students to a flat floor configuration, sight lines maybe don't matter quite as much. It becomes something about the activities that students are doing. Years ago, we took a tiered room at MIT and 
created a flat floor. We brought in steel beams and put flat floors and created a room down below and two rooms up above. And at the kickoff for it, the provost of MIT said, thousands of students have slept through class in this old space before. <laughs> you know, so it's really changing what it becomes important. So instead of facing forward and having a good sight line to a projected image or a professor, you might have technology in all four walls of the room. And no matter which way you're sitting at a team table, you can see it. And the instructor is no longer at the front of the room. The instructor, she may be walking around the room, coaching and guiding people rather than telling people. So sightline becomes a completely different measure and much, much uh, less important. In an active learning classroom, furniture needs to be as flexible as possible, right? So typically you can think about sort of rectangular tables that seat more than one person that can be moved in clusters. So you can grow the size of the groups or you could arrange them in rows if for some reason that was more of a lecture format on a specific day. But typically you would think of an, in an active learning classroom like groups of four to eight probably of students that would be facing each other and collaborating on kind of student-driven content. So using their own technology that they bring to the class in conjunction with technology that's kind of spread around the room. And then that kind of dovetails into sort of the need for power everywhere in the room. So the furniture has to be flexible as well as on casters and moved around as well as having access to the technology wherever that furniture lands. We recently had a client on the West Coast that their faculty insisted that movable furniture get anchored to the perfect position. So you can come semester to semester and rearrange it, but they didn't want to walk hmm. in the room and lose the you first 10 to. minutes getting the spacing just right. But if you have a really big room, lots of extra square footage, uh, that precision doesn't matter as much. So it depends on if you can afford extra feet per student. And also I think depends on if the class is being used in the same way by class period to class period. I think that's an important thing to understand as we're designing it. If this class size is going to change, if the professors are going to change the types of classes that are being led in those spaces, those all dictate sort of the, the the perfect layout of the room on any given day. Yeah, the too many tables in the room is a really common curse and it, it's really hard. The pressure to put more students than a room can easily hold is enormous. And it's one of our big job is to convince clients not to do that, to understand the pedagogy and the goals first and dial back the number of students you can realistically get in a room, especially in renovations. Another thing that goes with that too many tables in a room, one of the things we really have to consider when we're designing these classrooms is adjacent storage space. It's not something yeah. that automatically comes to mind. So every time we design an active learning classroom, there's a storage room off of it that can accommodate the furniture because it's it's got to always be changing and moving. You know, another thing we haven't talked about that's part of the student experience is how you arrive or how you depart mm -hmm. the room. I remember being at major university in Virginia walking to a pretty new auditorium to see it. And the hall was lined with students sitting on the floor waiting to go in the room. And I was watching as the students were leaving the previous class. And it was really fun. All the college boys were sitting with their legs out and all the <laughs> girls were sitting with their legs crossed. The boys couldn't do it. So I was literally watching the students leaving, stepping over the guy's legs sitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's such a lousy message. And so sometimes we forget that that sort of pre-function space um, for people to assemble in the class turnover is also an important part of our design.
Yeah, class turnovers are really important. It, you know, you don't think about it's part of life safety as well. You, there's you're considering the occupancy of the room, but in re, in reality, in classroom buildings, classes are are booked back to back. So you might have a hundred kids in a lecture hall, but you'll have a hundred more sitting outside for for the ten minutes before the class turns over. So you're doubling your occupancy. So making sure that we've got the space adjacent to the classrooms that accommodate those people in a safe manner is really important. They also become spaces that we create what we call orange space, which is student space that allows students to kind of have a place to relax between classes, to study, to gather, and they kind of drive how those spaces are used, but they're typically more comfortable than a typical classroom environment. And we like to make them spaces that feel welcoming when they're outside of class. And they have a huge import. You can use it before class to study on the material or work with someone. But even more important, I think, is after class, people can come out and stay together and keep talking on that academic material. You know, if you leave the building, you start talking about what the Patriots did last weekend or something like that, you get off topic. Mm -hmm. But if you can stay in the building, stay near the classroom, the likelihood of just doing some deep learning together with a peer, the peer-to-peer -peer learning is so profound. So we need those, those spaces and they have to be really adjacent. So would that look like a room that has a large atrium and the classrooms are pulled off of that on the perimeter? Or it could be just a wider hallway, a kind of concourse instead of a hallway. And At Yale, on a classroom building we're working on right now, it's an old building that we're got renovating. So we're pretty restricted in sort of the size of the spaces based on the original structure of the building. So we actually took over spaces that originally the school wanted, you know, would have previously used as classrooms or wanted to, to use as classrooms. We really pushed for those to be these student breakout spaces that are on the same floor as the lecture hall. Our kind of advocating for that was was really driven by sort of these life safety and the lack of wide corridors to accommodate students between classes. And then obviously all of the things we just mentioned about kind of the benefit for the students themselves. I learned that students who have connections with their peers are more likely to stay in school, stay there, and then also to do better in their work. So it it seems like to me in this conversation that those nook rooms are also helping with forging those connections and making sure that that the students are doing well and they're staying there. Yeah, we especially hear that in the sciences. The sciences are mm -hmm. often really difficult subjects, especially things like chemistry and physics. So if the students have places to work together, they're absolutely more successful in the classwork than if they're working alone, trying to do it alone. The, the power of peer-to-peer -peer learning is really, really important to consider in our designs. The nice thing about the, some of those spaces, too, is we can provide a variety of scale for spaces in these buildings. So classrooms are typically much larger and students are working with much bigger groups. But every student learns differently, you know, so some students really thrive in kind of small group learning. And so if we're able to provide spaces where that might be more intimate and they still have the ability to have technology and breakout spaces for smaller groups that that accommodates a different type of learner as well. Yeah. And jumping from here where we're thinking about these more intimate spaces and how it helps different types of learners, what makes a classroom more conducive for learning process? There was a study done by some people at Cornell years ago 
that talked about the energy in the room of students. And there are lots of things that are involved in it. But one of the ones that's really stuck with me is you want to change the physical pace of the student. So if you can have them sitting for a bit, then get up and yep. walk over to a whiteboard. So, you know, instead of an aisle being the minimum, if you can make it wider and put whiteboards on it on the sides or in the back too. So after a while, the students get up, they go do something. They're physically moving around the room. They come back, talk about it. They're they're verbally engaged, cognitively engaged, physically engaged. All of those things help create energy in the room. So it's lighting and, and spatial design too. It matters what the pedagogy is in the classroom. So a lecture hall, you really have to think about the zoning of the lighting so that you can kind of bring the lights down on the house of the space and really illuminate that teaching wall, as well as like separate zones for aisles and all of that. So having lights that dim and the ability to kind of change the atmosphere in those spaces is really important. A more typical style classroom, we still like to have a really well-lit teaching wall. So thinking about sort of wall washing, the wall that, that the professor is writing on or projecting on so that we can turn off that light specifically if there is you know, something projected on the wall. That's all really important. Obviously, we also control the kind of the light coming in through the windows. Shades is critical and in larger classrooms, we really think about having those be automated so that it's pretty easy to reduce glare. And so often that's controlled by the teacher station or something that like the, the professor has control over in a pretty easy way. Years ago, a lighting consultant taught me this. He said it's really important to have gloom busting light. Like, what's gloom busting light, you know? But we all walked in those rooms and it's really pretty simple. He said, you really want two different sources of light. So if it's all down lights, the room yeah. is, not, is gonna be charmless. So you wanna mix some wall washers with some down lights or something to give variety, especially important if the room doesn't have natural light. So thinking of ways that the light makes a cheery place you wanna be in is, again, really essential to learning. And I think temperature, we've all experienced those rooms where all you can think about is how uncomfortable you are, whether that's hot or too cold, you know. So obviously just working with our mechanical engineers to make sure that the temperature is the right, <laughs> the right temperature that's conducive to learning, I think is important. A lot of times you're trying to combat that old heat system that's pumping out too much heat and then the rooms are overheated all winter and you're to have the professors opening the windows. So the, the goal would be to to regulate the heat on the inside of the building so that that window wouldn't need to be opened. But obviously, natural ventilated air is also just nice effect. Everyone enjoys that. So I think if you can find the right balance. And, and you don't have the lawnmower going by on the outside. <laughs> during your class. The, the pressure thing is interesting coming out of COVID. We probably yeah. were putting a lot less air in than maybe we should have been. People are trying to re-engineer their spaces to increase the amount of fresh air that's coming in the room. So we, we've really, and, and it's good, been thinking about energy savings, but now we also have to think about healthy room ventilation. This past year was doing some renovations at Boston University on a classroom building that they have just retrofitted. Every single room has, you know, one of those large ventilation systems just like plopped in the middle, right? It was obviously an effect of COVID. And now it's just it kind of expected, I think, from their professors that the air is being circulated. And it's obviously not integrated into the design in any way. So going forward, that's something that we're going to focus on a lot more.
Right. You know, we haven't talked about seminar rooms, which are some of my favorite rooms. People are often confused. What is a seminar room? I'll take a seminar room for a hundred people, please. No, the seminar rooms aren't a hundred people. <laughs> a seminar room really is about a democracy in the learning experience. People are around some sort of common table. It's kind of a version of active learning, but more on the Socratic method where there's an instructor who's trying to get everyone involved in the conversation. And sometimes those rooms are better with not having those multiple flexible tables arranged together, but that big old solid wooden table. And it gives a gravitas to the experience and there's there's a certain charm to it. Of course, it's totally inflexible and hard to get in the room and to get a good one is very expensive. But again, the, the, the message of the learning experience when you walk in the room is very different. So we don't do a lot of those, but we do do some and they're fun. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about those furniture choices in a seminar room. You know, I feel like I typically do mostly training tables that can be moved and accommodated in that way. But when I think back to my college experience, I went to College of the Holy Cross, and there was, you know, very, very stately rooms for our seminar rooms in very old buildings, stone buildings, you know, with big wood tables. And there was something pretty special about those spaces. I think also there's the, the role of wood is interesting. Wood is has really powerful benefits. But if it's a science classroom, maybe there's less wood. If it's a humanities or social sciences room, we might put more wood in. There's there's a message, a subliminal thing that comes across that I think wood slows you down and, you know, maybe you take a little more time to be thoughtful and it's it's cozier and comfortable. So how much wood you put in a room depends on what's being taught in the room. Yeah, you can think about an old lecture hall lined with wood. Those are definitely a slower type space. And obviously it has its its benefits in terms of the warmth it provides and the connection to nature. All of that is something that we really try to bring in in variety of spaces throughout classroom buildings. But Charles is right that it has a time and place and probably you're not seeing as much wood in an active learning classroom. While we're on this discussion of the wooden materials, bringing that connection to nature into the interior spaces, it reminded me of the outdoor classrooms that were really common during COVID. And I believe they began during the polio epidemic. And I read that there was research done that the outdoor learning can have huge benefits on not only students' mental health, but their academic performance because it allowed them to focus better. And when I was in these classrooms that were in an outdoor setting, I remember them being most successful in literature courses. And perhaps that's because it kept people's attention to have that connection to nature in as well as the fact that we really didn't need to rely on any technology to have these discussions. Charles and Molly, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of The Good Room. And thank you for everybody who is listening. I hope to see you next time. Biology first. I